Welcome back to The Hold All, a podcast which can hold all topics. I'm Rory O'Connor. Episode 3 is about the CIA's declassified files on Ireland. Through those files, it tells the story of the CIA analysis of Irish neutrality and foreign policy, partition, the Irish aspect of the first Brexit referendum in 1975, with heavy echo of our current saga, about the White House's worry about one aspect of Irish membership of the European community, as it was called at the time. There's a hint about a CIA operation in Ireland, and also something about what the CIA really is at the end of the day. The music is by my friend John Lyons, and he returns briefly at the halfway point with a piercing musical short story. Here we go. The Central Intelligence Agency has a publicly accessible database called CREST, which stands for CIA Records Search Tool. CREST has a PDF of every declassified document of historical value produced by the CIA, which is over 25 years old. CREST has existed since 2000, but for a long time it could only be accessed through four computers at an office of the National Archives in Maryland. A couple of years ago, the CIA responded to legal action seeking to make the material available online by saying that this would take six years. So someone called Emma Best started printing off every document on Crest for online reproduction. The charming thing was that the CIA didn't charge for printing off documents at these computers, and as we all know, printing is expensive. The CIA caved, and since January 2017, Crest has been on the internet. Out of the idlest curiosity, I decided to have a look at what there was on Crest about Ireland. It's not that I expected anything sensational or juicy that had been overlooked, and depending on how you define juicy, I was more or less right. After all, in terms of international politics, Ireland just has been a a relatively unimportant country. Here we are, floating comfortably between the US and the UK, a fairly comfortable berth in 20th century history. There is a tradition of other neutral countries such as Sweden and Portugal being places where clandestine operations did happen. But practically speaking, Ireland was just away from the battle lines of the Cold War. So that's one factor explaining why juicy stuff isn't there in the first place. Another part of the explanation is that declassified files tend to be analysis of publicly available information. They come from what the CIA used to call the Directorate of Intelligence rather than the Directorate of Operations. It's reasonable to guess that the CIA has cables on intelligence gathering in Ireland, about Northern Ireland for example, but also about ordinary contacts with politicians in which an officer might simply get the same kind of information or perspective that an ordinary diplomat would get. But all that is precisely the stuff that's not been declassified. But the themes that arise in these analyses are interestingly revealing, about American foreign policy, about the CIA and about Ireland. It turned out that even these analyses are pretty small in number, so I'm going to go through them in a roughly but not strictly chronological order and let their themes reveal themselves. The first significant document is titled simply Ireland, with a publication date of the 1st of April 1949. It's 46 pages long and was part of a series of situation reports about 48 countries, which were all fundamentally written up in hot response to the beginning of the Cold War. More complete national intelligence surveys were eventually due to be written about all these countries, and there was some argument between the CIA on the one hand and the military and the State Department about whether producing these situation reports was worth the bother. But it was going to take at least a year for the first of the surveys to be published. In view of this, wrote the CIA officer overseeing the task, it is desirable to have some coverage of world areas in event of unforeseen emergency. 
That gives an idea of the urgency with which the CIA was treating the prospect that there might very soon be a hot war with the Soviet Union. With that fear in mind, the first striking thing in the Situation Report is to see Ireland described in the bold terms of its potential military strategic value. Here's how it opens. Because hostile military forces established in Ireland would be in a position to dominate lines of communication vital to the security of the United Kingdom and to develop air and submarine bases for attacks against North American war capabilities, denial of Ireland to an enemy is an inescapable principle of United States security. As an ally in an East-West war, Ireland would be a positive asset because it could provide sites for air and naval bases sheltered by Britain's air defences from which strategic bombing, anti-submarine and convoy protection operations could be facilitated. Although Irish neutrality in such a war would probably be tolerable, it could become necessary to utilise Ireland for these purposes under conceivable circumstances of sustained aerial bombardment or hostile occupation of British ports. The situation reports were produced with the assistance of the various branches of military intelligence and their advice is apparent in the Ireland report. Here's the Air Force contribution. Its terrain and topography lend themselves to the rapid construction of airfields which would be invaluable as bases for strategic bomber attacks as far east as the Ural Mountains. Defence of such bases from air attack by European-based planes would be greatly facilitated by the need for such planes to cross the anti-aircraft defences of Great Britain. And here's the Navy's contribution. Naval and naval air bases in Ireland would extend the range and effectiveness of anti-submarine and convoy protection operations in the southwestern approaches to the United Kingdom and in the eastern Atlantic generally. It's also notable that the planners were evidently envisaging a drawn-out and to a considerable extent conventional war with the Soviet-led Eastern Bloc. In April 1949, the USSR was four months away from testing its first atomic bomb. The main method of delivering such a bomb was by plane rather than by missile, and nuclear weapons were less powerful than they became in the early 50s with the hydrogen bomb. On the other hand, it was always thought most likely that a nuclear war would come after conventional battles in Europe throughout the Cold War, right till the 80s. And the situation underlines that, while territory is what Ireland mainly has to offer, quote, its potential manpower contribution is not inconsiderable. Ireland, though, had been neutral through the Second World War and did not join NATO, giving the reason that it could not join in an alliance with the United Kingdom as long as it included Northern Ireland, as long as there was partition in Ireland. The Situation Report goes into a surprising degree of detail about Irish history to account for Ireland staying out of NATO, from the Norman invasion of the 12th century to the various plantations and the Protestant ascendancy of the, of the 17th and 18th century, to the Act of Union and the Free State in 1922. And then to account for the ability to remain neutral during the Second World War, it mentions the British withdrawal in 1938 from the three ports it had retained under the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty and the gradual severing of constitutional ties with Britain beginning in the 1930s. But what were the prospects for Ireland softening on the Atlantic Pact, or at least participating in war if it came? The initial rejection of membership had happened because Sean McBride, Minister for External Affairs and so responsible for something like NATO, had simply written in response to a letter asking whether Ireland wanted an invitation by saying there could be no membership as long as there was partition. McBride had followed up by lobbying the US to apply pressure against partition in exchange for NATO membership. 
The only hint of all this in the situation report is that John A. Costello's inter-party government had exhibited unusual optimism that the end of partition may not be far off. This springs from a conviction that a united Ireland friendly to Britain would be more valuable in European defence plans than a divided Ireland. And it was assumed that the Labour government under Clement Attlee at the time would be sympathetic to this. But the CIA dismisses it all, correctly as it turned out, by saying, at present there are no convincing indications that the end of partition is imminent. It's worth pointing out that the Costello government was not unanimously and unbudgeably opposed to NATO membership, even with partition. But the inter-party government was very weak. It required every party involved in it to retain a majority in the door. McBride led one of those parties, which had plenty of Republicans in it. Until 1938, he himself had been IRA Chief of Staff. So for reasons of parliamentary arithmetic, it was better not to tempt him and them. Sean Lamasse, who was Taoiseach beginning a decade later, and Afina Fawler to boot, thought we could have joined even with partition. And questions were asked of McBride in the Dáil about whether the matter was as simple as he was saying. So really it wasn't as simple as he was saying. The CIA doesn't bring up these ambiguities and just says whether anything short of war would alter this attitude cannot be confidently estimated, which was true as far as it went. But the situation report is accurate about the extent of the difficulty partition posed. One of its most emphatic pieces of counsel is that opposition to partition in the 26 counties is genuine, not artificial, constant, not occasional. If political parties keep the issue before the people, it is because they cannot do otherwise and continue to exist. On this issue, if they sometimes deride the effectiveness of opponents' methods, they seldom question the sincerity of their motives. What's more, the report goes on, the view is widely held that partition was perpetrated and maintained by the British and can be ended by them. It's interesting because all these views are still reasonably widespread today, but reading them does still feel like reading ancient history because equally they've come under severe question because of the conflict since the late 1960s in Northern Ireland. So, NATO membership in 1949 was not on the agenda. But in an East-West war, Ireland, to quote the report, in all probability would not remain neutral. Eamon de Valera was out of government at this time, but in an appendix on significant personalities, his is amusingly and appropriately the first profiled. It says, In the event of war, he is not likely to insist on neutrality if the conflict comes to be regarded as a holy war. And it was not just Dev. The attitude of the church has great influence in Ireland and the Irish would probably be deeply stirred on religious grounds by an east-west war. So it was very possible that it would be all right on the night. Failing that, the report says, bases in Northern Ireland would undoubtedly still be available. When the IRA comes up for discussion in the report, it is referred to as a factor limiting internationalism. To the extent that internationalism means joining NATO, another such factor in the CIA's eyes was Finnefort, which it calls the most neutrality-minded of the parties. Its policies were said to be influenced by intense nationalism and disillusionment with big power policies, especially after 1935, when Britain and France stood by, connived even, during the Italian invasion of Abyssinia, of what's now Ethiopia. In fact, it's implicit in the report that this disillusionment is characteristic of what it calls Irish foreign policy as a whole. Always somewhat distrustful of great powers' motives, and possessed of a small country's normal reluctance to become involved in their conflicts, the Irish were never convinced 
that moral considerations played a great part in Allied war aims, it says, referring to the Second World War. And it notes that these factors were still present, even if attenuated by what are called obvious reasons, presumably meaning the Soviet Union's being atheistic. The small number of declassified files from later in the Cold War reflect this incomplete Irish alignment with the Western powers, an outlook which the CIA recognised bore the decisive imprint of Frank Aiken, the Fianna Fáil Minister for External Affairs, when Ireland joined the United Nations in 1955. A short profile of him in the Situation Report from 1949 had said, by some accounts he's very anti-British and anti-American. An incomplete clipping from a 1958 article called Ireland's Foreign Policy said the country has taken a position which diverges sharply from that of other Western nations, referring to Irish backing for representation of the Chinese Communist government at the UN and to a hopeful proposal for phased withdrawal of foreign forces, US and Russian, from Europe. Ireland was said to be firmly anti-communist, but the de Valera government is increasingly concerned with the inflexibility of the east-west power blocks and the threat of a general war. Aiken was said to be mainly responsible for the more aggressive approach, which also included a more active interest in colonial problems, leading to a, an Irish proposal for a UN investigation in Algeria, where France was fighting a very brutal anti-colonial insurrection. Incidentally, the phrase just mentioned, the inflexibility of east-west power blocks and the threat of a general war, has a whiff of the Vatican about it. The Vatican at some points in the Cold War, like during the Cuban Missile Crisis, saw its role as a mediator between the blocks, countering inflexibility. The Situation Report had already noted a special sensitivity to Vatican opinion. So even if it wasn't the true determinant of Irish neutrality, one of the things that could be pointed to in justifying it was the Vatican's perception of the Cold War. I would be interested to know if calling Ireland both anti-communist and anti-colonialist became a kind of pat Time magazine style formula in CIA analysis, because a paper sent to the White House in December 1974, in advance of Ireland's first European Community Presidency in the new year, refers to the Taoiseach at the time, Liam Cosgrave, as sharing basic Irish opposition to communism and colonialism. True enough, no doubt, but only the CIA could think of Liam Cosgrave as an anti-colonialist. The only example this 1974 paper gives of an Irish stance that might in the broadest sense be called anti-colonialist is Dublin's going along, as it says, with France on a pro-Palestinian motion and voting with France to allow the PLO to address the UN General Assembly. France was following its own economic interests in the Middle East at that time in doing that. For example, around this time, it sold the OSIRAC nuclear reactor to Iraq. That reference to going along with France is a clue to why exactly the paper, which is called The Outlook for Dublin's EC Presidency, was most likely written. I read it three times before I formed a view as to what the paper is actually about. It tends to jump about a bit, going from an assessment of key personalities in the Irish government, to a broad outline of normal Irish external policy, to a passage about what it calls the Northern Factor. But it is in fact fundamentally centred on one topic. That is, how to make sure that France did not prevent the United States from learning what it wanted to know about European matters by exerting too much influence on Ireland during its presidency. 
That might seem strange. Why would France being uncooperative be such a big issue? In historical context, though, it makes sense. For one thing, this paper was written at the request of Dennis Clift, who was on the National Security Council staff at the White House. For another, the 1970s were a pretty chaotic time for the international economy and for relations between America and Europe. Under Nixon, who was president until August 1974, the US had abandoned the gold standard, making it impossible for European countries to redeem their dollars for gold, while also leaving it impossible for them to stop taking the dollars in payment. After all, if the Europeans only took payment in their local currencies without reinvesting them in US financial instruments like treasury bills, the local currencies would appreciate unsustainably and ruin their foreign exports. The Treasury Secretary John Connolly summed up this shock by saying that the dollar was our currency but their problem. And Nixon followed this up by intensifying exports to the communist bloc. And the oil crisis which hurt Europe more than it did the US also helped nicely. In short, Nixon had conducted a trade war. Of a mind anyway to be independent under the influence of de Gaulle, France in particular at this time had reason to question how reliable the United States was, and so did the rest of Europe. By the time Gerald Ford became president after Nixon's resignation, it was time for a more diplomatic American approach, while being mindful of possible European backsliding, such as by information withholding. The 1974 paper notes, as the Situation Report had too, that a pro-French leaning is a constant thread of Irish foreign policy, and that Ireland had agreed with France about almost everything since joining the EC. It notes that Ireland at the time was looking to the EC where previously it had looked mostly to the US and the UK in its external relations, but also that there was potentially agreement about how federal Europe should be, Ireland being all for federalism, while France, as it had been under de Gaulle, was more interested in a Europe of nations. Gard Fitzgerald, who was Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs at that time, is quoted as saying that since becoming an EC member, Ireland now had to express a viewpoint about many more issues, and the reason for this was that when we seek to press the particular needs of this country, we shall be listened to attentively and willingly. In other words, there were plenty of opportunities for quid pro quo slevenery, and this would not necessarily be helpful to America. When it came to directly assessing the state of play in relation to information flow between Europe and the US in 1975, the CIA assessment was that Ireland as a small country with a seat at a big table, and for a few months at the head of that big table, naturally wanted to use the EC presidency as a principal channel for US EC consultations. But Ireland was wondering whether Washington was interested in that while a small country was in the post, and also whether information exchange would be reciprocal. France had actually been in the presidency just before Ireland, and it was noted that Paris had sought to impose a total embargo on talking to Washington about some proceedings of EC meetings, such as those of Asian specialists. So clearly the battle for competitive advantage in international markets was not over. The paper says the Irish will be under pressure from Paris similarly to withhold information. However, their position is likely to depend on how seriously they think the presidency is being taken as a channel for consultations. At present, the Irish are questioning whether Washington may not be more interested in consulting with the larger EC members than with the EC as a unit. 
And then there's some information about the simple practical difficulties of Ireland in the 1970s holding the presidency. It had a small foreign ministry and there were very few flights to Dublin. Normally, apparently, the foreign ministry of the presiding state would set up an agenda for meetings on Asian or Middle Eastern affairs and then give briefings on topics of interest from a European point of view. But it was expected there would simply not be enough manpower or expertise. And this was where the French had an opportunity to help, at a price, so America feared. The other EC countries, particularly France, may offer to help Dublin in various ways. Only so much can be done along these lines, however, and to some extent help from an EC partner will also give that partner considerable influence over Irish policies and positions. The paper does not explicitly recommend a policy, which after all is not officially the job of the CIA. It simply finishes up by saying that Dublin will be extremely sensitive to the attitudes of other EC members, but also to Washington's attitude. But it seems to follow from its analysis that if the White House wished to obtain EC information and to head off the risk of French influence on the Irish presidency, that it would do well to treat the presidency as a serious means of communication with the EC and also to pass on substantive information that way. And that would be more or less in line with normal American policy anyway. The last clues as to what inspired this White House Commission paper and to how the problems that it discussed were in fact partly resolved is that three days after it was received by the White House, Ford and the French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing met over two days at a poolside summit on the French Caribbean island of Martinique, where Ford established a warm personal relationship with Giscard of the kind that French presidents don't normally have with American ones. The success of that meeting would lead on the political initiative of France to the first G7 meeting between the heads of government of the leading economies in November 1975. So France got a seat at an important table. That's not necessarily to say that the EC was not used as a means of communication and diplomacy. Unfortunately, I've not been able to figure out how the considerations referred to in the CIA paper played out. Ultimately, anyway, partly by means of the G7, which grew to include the president of the EC as an invitee anyway, and other talking shops like the OECD, the US government prepared, with the ready cooperation of the other developed powers, including France, the rejuvenation of America's economic position during the rest of the 70s. And this concluded with a huge interest rate increase in the early 80s, which drew much European finance and solved, for that time, the US balance of payments problem. Yeah, because I forgot my phone. A flower in your hair. <laughs> you sat down. And I walked away. Bitch. 1975 was also the year of the first British referendum on Europe when the UK voted to stay in by a large majority. It wasn't clear that there would be a referendum until that March, but with a foreshadow of David Cameron's travails, a renegotiation of Britain's terms of membership had been going on since early the previous year. And the paper on Dublin's EC presidency notes that, while the Irish economy is still closely entwined with Britain's, Dublin makes it a cardinal point not to espouse any policy contravening basic British interests. For its own as well as London's benefit, Dublin has been pressing the French to take a more generous position towards the UK's efforts to negotiate more favourable terms for its EC membership. Obviously Ireland is still pursuing a policy based on economic interest, probably with an additional perceived political interest 
on the part of the present Irish government. But that passage does show what an unusual time we're in just now, to the extent that a lot of Irish diplomatic energy is being directed against British policy, or manoeuvring if you want to call it that. Anyway, the déjà vu continues with a short staff note, essentially a page in a regularly produced bulletin. This note was published a couple of weeks before the 1975 referendum. Here is the note in full. The government in Dublin has concluded that if London decides to bolt the EC, Ireland would lose more by pulling out than by staying in. The Republic will sustain a loss if the UK withdraws, but a recent Dublin survey suggests the country's annual GNP will only drop approximately $235 million if Dublin remains in, but $470 million if Dublin withdraws with London. Although the present Dublin government is in favour of staying in, a British withdrawal would pose difficulties for relations with Northern Ireland. The border between the two parts of Ireland would thus become an easy frontier, causing some serious political as well as economic repercussions. Nearly 10% of the Republic's exports go to Ulster. (laughs) The increase in tariffs on such goods without the present free trade agreement with the UK would add to Dublin's overall drop in trade. There have been indications that businessmen in Ulster are concerned about a possible UK withdrawal. One group visiting Brussels recently was told by EC officials that all outstanding loans to Northern Ireland businesses would be called immediately if London leaves the EC. Another group of local government officials visiting an EC capital were told that an independent Northern Ireland would not be excluded from membership if the UK or the Irish Republic did not object. Kind of eerie. Except for the last sentence, everything has an echo today. It's not really a mystery what the bulletins on the backstop are most likely saying these days, something much the same as this, just updated, but it would still be fun to see the briefings. Incidentally, another part of the 1975 bulletin that that note comes from is a note about public opinion in Denmark about the EC, and there is something else entirely redacted with the classification code 25X6, which is supposed to indicate that publishing the redacted part would cause serious diplomatic damage to the US. This is almost certainly about the UK's EC referendum, and almost certainly when the bulletin was declassified in 2001, it would not have caused the slightest diplomatic damage. It's just one of those things you find while going through these documents, that any hint that the US in any respect thinks of the UK as just another foreign country, as it demonstrably does, has to be redacted. Even the most innocuous hint, such as the fact that there was a CIA-produced National Intelligence Survey on the UK, like there was for every other country. A small price to pay for a profitable trade deal these days. A lot of the rest of the Crest Files about Ireland is fundamentally news, small articles that could as well have appeared in an Irish newspaper as political reporting or analysis. And they're pretty random. My guess is that they were released as slim pickings in response to Freedom of Information requests. In chronological order, the likely result of the 1961 general election, Neil Blaney being a pain to the Taoiseach Jack Lynch and causing tension in government over Northern Ireland in 1969, Lynch being very likely to overcome a leadership challenge from Charles Haughey after the arms trial in 1970, the 1973 presidential election. I mention all this just because it gives a sense of what humdrum daily analysis and intelligence reporting is. But there is another strand of reporting with which it is worth finishing our look at the analytical material, because it says something about what the CIA fundamentally is. 
This is its persistent concern with the form of economy of a country, with state intervention in the economy, with property rights, labour rights, and about how all these are represented in party politics. In the 1949 Situation Report that we began with, for example, an important point relating to the structure of government in Ireland is that the right to own and transfer property is constitutionally guaranteed, and a law infringing that right would be struck down by the courts. And then there is a kind of marking of cards of the various political parties regarding economics and property rights. So Fianna Fáil favours a limited amount of state control of the economy and state assistance in the development of industry that the wealthy and conservative elements support Fine Gael, and Labour is the most trade-union conscious of the left-wing parties. The Catholic Church is noted as a conservative force in society, not just opposing communism but also nationalist revolt, and amusingly there is said to be no Catholic party as such, but all parties could so qualify. It's not that the CIA imagined reds under every bed. For example, it dismissed the idea that trade unions, or the left of centre parties Labour and Clonna Publicta, had been infiltrated by communists, and this at a time when, as it also notes, red scares were a winning tactic for Fianna Fáil. At this time, according to an article by Professor John Horgan, the American legation in Dublin was reporting back to Washington that there was a concerted communist effort to infiltrate Irish newspapers. Maybe this was just because the diplomats were idle and stir-crazy. The Situation Report just notes that communism has little appeal to the Irish for religious reasons and offers no conceivable threat to the state, and it mentions the name of the leader of the minute communist element, Sean Nolan. That brings to mind, by the way, the State Department cables leaked by Wikileaks, which had the names of all the Dublin imams. What is striking is simply this need to know, to keep tabs on, all economic developments. There's a CIA briefing on the prospects for unification in the Irish labour movement. Interestingly, it refers to a brightening of these prospects, and that adjective becomes understandable when you learn that it had become somewhat more likely that one of the trade union congresses would break their links with British unions. That would be a move away from cosmopolitan influence, on the whole a good thing for business, and it was certainly being sought by conservative elements of society, including Fianna Fáil. All of this is not such a big deal, it might be thought. It was Ireland, after all, and nothing happened. But if they were keeping watchful tabs on Irish trade unions, political parties, social institutions, they were doing so everywhere else too, and for a reason. To protect and expand the interests of American capital. In those places like Syria, Iran, Guatemala, Iraq, Indonesia, to take us only to the end of the 1950s, where CIA-backed coups did happen, there were disasters. There is indeed the non-trivial 20th century fact that Marxism-Leninism was a disaster, and that in protecting American capital, the CIA was fighting against it too, as well as against independent governments which had their own ups and downs. But the point is that if we attempt to construct in our time a more just and pacific social life, it will not necessarily be any better received. It's unfortunate that there's no verifiable material about operations in Ireland in the Crest Archive. Instead, when the archive was put online, Irish newspapers had to lead with the sexy story of something that sounded like an operation. What happened was that the CIA had declined to answer when questioned, whether it had assisted an IRA gun-running attempt in 1981. At trial, the five smugglers had presented an argument in their defence that the undercover FBI agent from whom they had bought weapons had in fact been a CIA informant, 
and that smuggling had happened with the knowledge and approval of the US government, which was concerned that the IRA should not turn to the Eastern Bloc for weapons. Simply because the CIA does not present a defence in its own online archive, this story gains a certain superficial plausibility, which the newspapers did nothing to counter. Now, it's plausible, in fact likely, that at various junctures during the conflict in Northern Ireland, that the CIA made some form of direct contact, however clandestine, with armed Irish Republicans. After all, it's apparent from the declassified files that the CIA had at least one eye on Soviet contact with the Republican paramilitaries. A photocopied Sunday Telegraph article from 1975 records the arrival in Dublin of Vladimir Kozlov, ostensibly a correspondent of TASS, the Soviet news agency, but thought by British and Irish security officials to be a member of the notorious Department 5 of the KGB, which is responsible for assassination and sabotage. He was alleged to have made contact with the INLA, which had splintered from the official IRA. In these circumstances, the CIA would have regarded sticking their oar in as merely part of the job. But still, there's a high likelihood that the gunrunner's defence was a try-on. CIA informants do not necessarily proclaim government motives or introduce themselves honestly. But the defence succeeded and the five men were acquitted. As the journalist Ed Maloney has written, it may be that the jury bought an unlikely story or acted politically at a time when the hunger strikes were world news. And even if the undercover FBI man had a CIA connection, it would not necessarily mean that the CIA was facilitating the gun running. As Maloney points out, in the early 80s, under pressure from the British, the US government had started to target and interdict IRA gun smuggling as it had not done in the 70s. A CIA informant could have been involved in such an operation. Apart from that, there are a couple of letters responding to interested Irish-American organisations by declining to comment about whether the CIA was working in Northern Ireland in the 70s and 80s. Pragmatically speaking, there's confirmation that of course something was happening in the form of a copy kept by the CIA of an August 1970 article by Pruncheus McEngusa, most likely for the Sunday Press in Ireland. The Central Intelligence Agency's operation in Ireland has increased considerably in recent months and will be expanding still further in the coming weeks, it begins. And he notes later on that it appears that the principal CIA man in Ireland is not attached to the embassy at Balls Bridge, but is a former US diplomat well known in Dublin society. He stood me lunch once and I often wondered why. Now I know. I pick out those parts of the article because there are handwritten tick marks beside those passages, as if to say, maybe, that McEngusa had got these things right. The article also records that he had seen, by chance, he wrote, documents giving certain information about this operation, which named that principal CIA man and others. Now, the idea that he had just chanced to see some CIA documents lying around is extraordinary and can be confidently ruled out. For what it may all be worth, the rest of the article records that the expanded operation is still small, with not much money being spent on it, and that the reason for it is, of course, the disturbed nature of the country and the possibility of violent changes in the structure of government and society. It is striking, however, that no Republican faction, neither the official nor the provisional IRA, is ever mentioned in the article. Instead, it notes that one CIA asset who regularly travelled to Ireland keeps a close eye on the universities and provides the most detailed information about professors and lecturers, that the staff at UCD were considered more revolutionary-minded and more dangerous to the status quo than Trinity College staff, and that the asset was in touch with student bodies but that his main mission is to keep an eye on teachers. 
things end on a cheery note. The operation does not mean that the US plans an assault on Ireland or proposes to intervene in the event of revolution. Washington simply wants to be accurately informed of all that goes on and to have that information intelligently evaluated. I have the names of only a handful of CIA agents and regular contacts in Ireland, but if they are all of the same impressive calibre, Washington is getting good value for its money and it really knows what is going on here. Again, the idea that McAngusa, who was a soft-core Irish Republican incidentally, got his hands on the names of a number of CIA officers and assets by accident cannot be believed. Brunchidis McAngus' archive is at the James Hardiman Library in NUI Galway, seemingly in an unindexed state, and it would be nice one day to get there and see if I can find out if there are any hints as to what the article was based on. In the meantime, it is impossible to arrive at a final answer about the article's significance, but here are a couple of possibilities. The first possibility is that this article in the Sunday Press was a form of limited hangout. Limited hangouts were defined by the former CIA officer Victor Marchetti as admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth, while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts in the case. He added that the public is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further. One argument I can think of against the idea that it was a limited hangout is that there was no sufficient clamour for information about possible CIA operations in Ireland at the time. But there was some curiosity. For example, Conor Cruz O'Brien, a Labour TD at the time, wrote about it in his political diary in July 1970, a month before McAngus's article, and later published it in his book States of Ireland. In his diary, he wrote that the CIA might have been able to work with the Hohe Blaney wing of the provisional IRA if the officials were ever to turn for help to the communists, though he sensibly added in the book that he had no evidence of this and would not attribute any major significance to such a factor. After the article, if someone wanted to know whether the CIA were up to anything, there was an answer already published without reference to the substance of the operation. After the article, if somebody wanted to know whether the CIA were up to anything, there was an answer already published without reference to the substance of the operation. An argument against this possibility is that it would just invite further questions. The other possibilities, perhaps more plausible, were mentioned to me by Tom Secker when I asked his opinion. These are that the article was a form of communication between intelligence agencies. Either that the CIA was thumbing its nose at the KGB or letting British intelligence know that it was operating in Ireland without going through official channels, or, as an outside chance, that British intelligence let the CIA know that they knew what the CIA was up to as a warning to back off MI5's turf. As another possibility, it could actually have been planted by the KGB. The operation side of things remains a black box to this day, which is a pity, but in fact the analytical material is quite interesting enough. So that was the podcast. Show notes including links to every document I referred to are available on my website roryoconnor.xyz, which is worth checking out. Here, look, no one is going to employ me, so why don't you? I loved doing the research for this, feel I was in a good position to put it all into context, and trust that some learning has come out of it for you. And I'm going to keep going on with this and with other topics. For instance, as a result of the research I did here, I've made a number of freedom of information requests to the CIA, which I believe have a fair degree of success, including for the National Intelligence Survey on Ireland, of the type mentioned in the podcast, most of which are declassified, but the Irish one of which apparently no one has asked for simply till now. 
So support this kind of palaver on patreon.com slash Rory O'Connor. In addition to supporting my regular podcasts and writing, there's a column every month for subscribers only. Think about it. Thanks and talk soon. Thank <laughs> you.